0: Welcome to Health Talk Africa, a podcast by the African Public Health Network at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We are a student run organization founded in 1991. Our focus is to create a platform for interest participants to learn about the happenings in the African public health space and to create an avenue for networking. We hope you enjoy this podcast series. thank you for joining me. My name is Ukema Essien. I am the current APHN president. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sufia Dedabai, the director of the Johns Hopkins Research Campus in Malawi. Take a listen. Welcome, Dr. Sufia Dedabai.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Um, So we're just going to get started learning more about you and your background. So can you tell us a bit more about your work, especially in Malawi? Uh,
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist by training. I'm faculty in the Department of Epidemiology at the School of Public Health, as you said. And I am country director at the Johns Hopkins Research Project, which is uh, sort of a three-party entity that exists for clinical trials research in Malawi. Uh, we are uh, affiliated with the College of Medicine in Malawi locally, as well as the Ministry of Health. And our you know, mother institution is, is Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health in Baltimore, of course. Mm-hmm. I've been here five years, a little over five years, I'm faculty resident in Malawi. And as I mentioned, we mainly do clinical trials, uh, NIH funded clinical trials that we've expanded that a bit. Our bread and butter research has always been on maternal and child health uh, because the organization was started by uh, a group of very dedicated uh, OB-GYNs and pediatricians though we've expanded quite a bit beyond maternal child research into the areas of adult research and adolescent youth research, as well as non-pregnant adults. So we have um, a team of 170 or so staff, and that ranges from our drivers, And cleaners to our nurses, our data officers and clinical officers and investigators of record. We primarily focus on HIV research, but have expanded to do a bit more in reproductive health, as well as comorbidities associated with HIV, such as uh, hepatitis or AIDS-related cancers and uh, malaria and tuberculosis.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I'm guessing a lot of people listening might even start wondering, I mean, what path do you get on to eventually get on the path you're on, which is, um, you know, being able to direct a research campus, you know, an off-site research campus, or just being involved in something more like this. Uh, Where would you... Or, I mean, can you take us a step back to sort of um, guide as to how you got here?
1: Uh, certainly, we're happy to do that. Um, I actually had to think about this a little bit. It's sort of like uh, when someone asks you how you and a good friend met, and then you have to <laughs> kind of stare at each other and say, gosh, how did we meet? You know, because it's just been so long. or it's like. Right, uh, a winding path. Um, me personally, I think everyone's different in their right, in their right. how they kind of build the trajectory toward their the current career path or relationships that they're in. Uh, I tend to be a little more opportunist than I am a planner mm. to be honest. and so i I would have to say the current position I'm in is more of a right place, right time. Uh, But certainly every experience I had before this led me to this position as well, even if I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I don't think the job I could I'm doing currently could be done by someone who's never done global public health before. Okay. so, uh, you know, that's something if you I think that's a really uh, critical uh, all those, the, all those projects you work on, whether it's behind a computer or spending a week, two weeks, three months, a year, six months, that all builds uh, toward an understanding and a commitment that investigators, PIs of institutions like the one that I'm working for, uh, that's what they look for. Um, yeah. You know, and I think there's definitely a place, a time, and place for people who are totally new and totally green. Uh, my particular position wouldn't have allowed for that, but I'm very thankful that somebody saw the experience that I had mm-hmm. and uh, and saw that it, there was room to grow my capacity and to uh, really flaunt my capacity, I guess, here in the current position I'm in. So my previous experiences range from working in South Africa to working in Kenya. And I've always, I've always worked in the global public health space. I've mm. never uh, changed that. So I think there was a clear picture from my CV or bio sketch that uh, showed a commitment, a desire, a range of experiences that, made me uh, who I am today and, uh, you know, highlighted me when the, yeah, I was looking for someone to take a leadership position here.
0: Great. So key for anyone listening and interested, you definitely have to find a way to uh, have global health as part of your experience and, and kind of tell the story with your experiences too, that you are indeed interested in global health. Great, great. Um, so anyway, I'm sure a lot of people are also interested in finding out what life in Malawi is like, at least pre-pandemic.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sh- surely, um, I'm happy to share my experience here. Of course. I think like a huge range of uh, ways of life in Blantyre, where I live now, in Malawi, in sub-Saharan Africa, and on the continent as a whole. Uh, but speaking from my personal experience, again, this is my uh, not my first time living on the continent. So it was an easier it was a softer landing mm-hmm. when I moved here. Um, and also the, the you know, the organization or the institution through which uh, uh, someone like myself, an American citizen might find uh, myself, someone might find myself in Africa will heavily determine how your experience of living in the country uh, will look so you know if you come through a USAID or a CDC Mm -hmm. a government type of position you're going to be in a very different situation I believe than the one I find myself in and Mm -hmm. I think that's something you have to be self-aware there's no right or wrong Uh, I knew that I preferred to come through an academic and academia trajectory to the to the world i'm in now but you know there's 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 a number of different ways you could do it you could go service sector you could be working from you know a school based a university based. you could be coming from a government position as i mentioned so i think there's a number of different ways to do it And uh, I think the duration for which you intend to be here will also really drive the experience you have, Mm -hmm. uh, because the first few months and first year you live here, your mind is in kind of two spaces. And as a very real example of that, uh, both when I moved to Kenya and when I moved to Malawi, the first year I carried two phones, a U.S. (laughs) phone. I had this USA WhatsApp with like a 202 DC number and I have my local phone. And then over time you find yourself, you know, not checking the U S number as much. Mm -hmm. And then finally you find yourself, you know, just, I'm going to leave that at home and only turn it on when I'm traveling. Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, there's a process and it is, tricky because you're living in two worlds Um, right right for me I didn't come here with family I think that makes a huge difference if you're coming with you know a plus one a family that's uh, going to be here with you physically or are they going to be visiting and Mm. so there's a lot of factors that go into it but uh, personally in my my world in Malawi is you know, but besides work, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I think that was an important consideration for me. Yeah. You can't just come here to work all the time. Maybe yeah, I could of have, <laughs> but uh, not 20 anymore. And so I needed um, a, Place where I could find uh, release and find ways to kind of cope with work stress in the outdoors, hiking, swimming, going to the lake, et cetera. So that was important to me. Uh, Otherwise, you know, it's life as usual. You've got water bills, you've got electricity bills, you've got to go to the grocery store. Um, Obviously, I think something to consider is how are you going to cope with the disparities between perhaps you and some of uh your the peers you have around you or or the you know the depth of disparity that you're entering that you're inheriting as you move into this space into this country um and where do you fit in as an expatriate what do you look like how will they see you yeah. um i think all of those factors you know again no rights right or wrong but i think it's important to be self-aware and give yeah. your time give yourself time to explore and understand and struggle with some of it and come to some understanding.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. I feel like a lot of times when people try to talk about the experiences, they almost don't want to talk about that glaring part of it, the disparities you will see. Um, And I feel like it should always be part of the conversation, because if you are going long-term somewhere, you should also try to figure out how you can You know, I mean, I I feel like intrinsically the conversation should also include how you can promote equity, increase access Mm -hmm. to things in health, Um, I guess, which brings me around to, you know, asking you, I know your work, as you mentioned, also covers a lot of HIV, HIV AIDS research. Um, Can you give us some ways or examples of how your work promotes equity and increased access Mm -hmm. to health?
1: Uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really good question for a clinical trialist. Um, you know, inherently, when you learn about clinical trials, there mm-hmm. is a gap in the training uh, in terms of translating the research findings mm-hmm. into policy or practice. Um <clears throat> you know, you're kind of very upstream with the research you do if you work in clinical trials. And I think it's something people also have to really be aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, Every study design, every type of research study comes with pros and cons. And so you have to kind of figure out where on the spectrum do you want to work? Do you want to work very close to the end product that is Mm -hmm. going to be rolled out? Then maybe you should be looking for, you know, implementation science, kind of uh, settings or content that that's what that's where you want to focus if you're really interested in helping establish a gold standard uh, then maybe clinical trials are where you would like to be so it's it's a mix Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's a personal component and a professional component the maybe the the on the professional side I think there's two angles one is you know, the actual product that you're putting out there as a research institution, uh, are you making dissemination of that information accessible to a wide range of stakeholders? Yes. I think that's really important. And it's an ethical issue. It's not just a, um, well, if I don't disseminate my research, they won't help me recruit next year, you know, for this yeah. next study. But, uh, you know, Knowing your limitations, I know as a clinical trials organization, we're not inherently, we're a biomedical research institution. We're not inherently set up to do translational policy. So the best translational research, so the best uh, avenue we have is to build strong stakeholder support early on in the work that we're doing, Uh, not come to them five years after the study is finished saying hey we, we we just finished a clinical trial let me tell you all about it now but to engage them from the beginning throughout uh, I think community engagement takes on like a whole new level where I'm right. working it between our community advisory board and the multiple levels of stakeholders we have at the city council level and you know understanding the dynamics of who who are key opinion leaders here and I and I don't, I'm not, I am, make no assumptions. No, uh, I'm not, I'm very humble about this. Let me say, I don't, I'm not the right person to do that because I'm not from the local context. I'm not Malawian. Mm-hmm. So the best, uh, the, the important thing is understanding your limitations, understanding your gaps and your weaknesses as a, as a leader and making sure your organization as a whole, as a team, uh, fills out all those gaps and those needs. So we have an excellent community engagement department mm-hmm. that is um, upheld as an example by other research institutions in Malawi. Um, and I think they make the world of difference in terms of link, make, building those bridges mm-hmm. to people who can make decisions and uh, make practice and policy happen in this context once results come out. So uh, I think also advocating for our local leadership, and I, I'll let me back up for one second, out of 170 of us in the organization, 169 are Malawian, and I'm the only American there. So wow. that was the case when we started, you know, it was 50-50 years ago. It was a much smaller organization, so it was 50-50. Every time an American left, Malawian had been trained for that role and we've not gone back on that. You know, we've never, we've not, we haven't backpedaled. So, um, I think that's really important, but looking at my local leadership and my local young leaders, and I don't want to be in the spotlight at all. And if we're, if we're building capacity, why not flaunt it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, really spending time and thinking to say, okay, which WHO panels are there? What are the working groups? Where's the technical working group? What's the, Where's the steering committee? Who are the decision makers? And how do I get my team onto those panels uh, as the voice, the scientific expert? And that's where, you know, that's where capacity building happens. That's where I think that's where a, a base of some of the the equity that we're obligated about happens. You know, generating research that sits on a shelf is completely. Yeah,
0: amazing. or in a silo that doesn't exactly. really apply. Yeah.
1: You know, having that critical eye from the beginning, I think, is really important. If something is completely unacceptable, not feasible, completely unappealing to the population that you're working with, then should you even accept that research study, even if it comes with a price tag, you know, or a, a budget? And I think that, you know, that drives decisions more than it should sometimes you know you have to really think will this ever apply and be used in my local setting and then you know on a professional on a personal level I think as you said uh you know not hiding and not shying away from the fact and that there are massive disparities um and then figuring out where how do you Try and narrow that gap. How it, You can't fix all of it, but what is your role? And how do you apply your privilege yes. to boost and uh, amplify the power and the voices of those with less privilege? I don't believe any person has no power or no voice ever. Mm-hmm. It's just people's power hasn't been acknowledged or their voice has been a little bit quieter. And so how do you use your, uh, yeah, your privilege to boost someone else's power or voice, I think, is... Critical in that, I think that's come up quite a lot in the COVID pandemic as well. I was, you know, in the U.S. and all around, but also yeah, here.
0: yeah, that's that's really that's um, uh, it's really important. I'm glad you addressed it so thoroughly. Um, and I mean, I guess with all your work there, as you mentioned, how you guys were at some point more 50-50 and now it's almost almost. Fully Malawians, um, how? What challenges have you faced, especially as an American woman? Um, I guess without your family with you, uh, what challenges have you faced in this position and in working away from home in Malawi?
1: Let me think how to answer this. Um, challenges, many. Uh, the environment here is uh, not easy for mm-hmm. the work that we are trying to achieve. Uh, access supply chains are difficult and um see so work here work can be here can be difficult but me personally as in I mean challenges I experience more on a personal level it's it's very much a male hierarchical society yeah male dominated hierarchical society and I don't mean uh I, I mean that in a several ways I think the, the, the spaces dominate the leadership, and I think we see this in our institutions in the US as well. Um, folks in more junior positions and the worker folks, the, the people who get the thing done,
0: mm-hmm.
1: more women, people in the leadership position, more men. So you're finding that the leadership does not reflect. Mm. uh the the rest of the institution or the re- the rest of the field and that that's frustrating. So I'm one of the you know I'm I'm very lucky to be the in the position that I'm in do people treat me differently than if I were a male colleague absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do I let it get in the way. Of course on Sundays it gets to you more than the other but I really feel like your work should just speak for itself. So on days when things get tough, I just put my head down and get the work done and let mm-hmm. the work speak for itself. I think that's important. I try not to spend, um, a lot of time. I, I wouldn't say, uh, it's not a wallowing. It's, it's, it's a, I don't spend a lot of time trying to correct other people who don't have an interest in correcting themselves. Uh, that's my approach. Uh, I know that's not everyone's approach. I try and, uh, pick my battles a little bit there in that, in that respect, but, Uh, certainly being an American woman, I think language is a a barrier. Uh, People view you as, um, some view you as an ally, some may not. I think because I'm part of an organization that is really committed to um, employing and uh, elevating Malawian scientists and researchers, Mm -hmm. I think that's Really helped me in terms of relating to my professional peers, mm. and that has really opened doors and uh, helped uh, me have a seat at the table. So I think I, I I stand on the shoulder of giants who who kind of set up the organization in that way. Um, and otherwise, I kind of like I said, I keep my head down and get my work done. And I think the the um, even my staff that I'll tell you the one of the very first things. Uh, one of the very first meetings I had was a, a gentleman at work. He came in and sat at my desk when I moved here in October 2015, and he said, "I came to welcome you to the organization. Welcome to the new director." And then he said, "I never thought I'd have to work for a woman." Oh lord! And this is—I mean, <laughs> I'm involved, and this is completely open to share this. Uh, uh, three months later, at our holiday—or two months later—at our holiday party, he was giving the one of the keynotes at our holiday party, Uh, he said, you know, it's worked and I'm very lucky and very proud to be working for a woman. And he turned to all the women in the audience and he said, this is your person and this, she's making it work. She's, she's made me a converter and it was, uh, she's converted me. And so I, I thought that was quite Quite a, a, a nice interesting. Role. <laughs> hmm. it took two and a half months to convince the man that it wasn't so bad to <laughs> so work have a female a woman in leadership. So uh, I thought that was a an interesting. It was a good moment for me. Um, I hope that answers the question. Yes, of course. Yes, yes,
0: of course. Yeah. Um, yes, very interesting. Um, okay, so just. Talking more now about COVID, we were all dealing with a pandemic now. I understand Malawi may also not have the most uh, robust healthcare system at the moment. Um, How is the country handling COVID? Uh,
1: That's an excellent question. Um, So we're in, just to give a bit of background context, Malawi's first case was April 2nd, 2020. Mm -hmm. A state of national disaster was declared by the president. At that time, we have a different president currently and uh, borders were closed, Um, testing was ramped up. Uh, Our first wave overall was quite controlled. Uh, That's not to undermine the lives that were lost during that time. Um, But if I were to put some figures on it, our first wave, I, I would say was, um, you know, a a difficult five months, Mm -hmm. but it did not, it did not overwhelm the healthcare system. Mm. Our second wave has been very different. It's, it's like ravaged us. It is a very unrelenting Um, a tidal wave that we're facing right now, unfortunately. Um, So how is the the country as a whole managing? So I was going to try and pull up some numbers here just to give, since the audience is, is a numbers focused group, (laughs) I would say, so uh, we had a, we had a day or two in the, in terms of percent positivity being 20, 25% last May but up through uh, between May 1st uh, where numbers started being published transparently Mm -hmm. uh, through you know early September uh, numbers were uh, manageable difficult but manageable with a range of zero to maybe eight deaths
0: Mm. in
1: a day as a country
0: yeah
1: uh, in a range of you know up to maybe 112 cases in a day as a country of course this is in the background I have to say we were running about you know 500 tests a day or less Mm -hmm. Um, right now the numbers have you know between tripled and quadrupled uh, in all fronts and yesterday we hit our peak in terms of admissions cases and deaths and it's oh, wow. a difficult time two ministers died earlier this oh, year that would be the equivalent of cabinet members
0: right
1: those on the call who don't um may not understand the, the parliamentary system so it's quite a difficult time oh, uh, the gosh. hospital bed capacity is is full um admissions have to be really carefully weighed um and as some people say, you have to wait for someone to die before you get a bed. And it, it is a typical time. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think the country is doing better in some areas. I think the hospital care is as robust as possible, given the resources available yeah. and the existing supply chains, the existing human resources, but um, which are not enough, but given the resources at baseline, I think the hospital care system is responding as best as possible. I right. think the prevention side is struggling heavily. We still, a, even given what I've just told you, we still allow a hundred-person gatherings, and um, oh. you know, face masks are largely optional. Oh, wow. There are no restrictions in terms of spacing. The minibusses, which are like uh, minivans that you would, yeah. you know, us you can sit three to four in a row. So your shoulders shoulder like wow. so packed in and masks are uh, encouraged, but not required. It's a, it's a tough time. There's been no lockdown in Malawi. The economic uh, consequences of a lockdown were uh, outweighed the yeah, yeah. need for infectious disease uh, containment. And so there was actually a a lockdown ordered by the president last year, but the Supreme court, uh, there was an injunction at the Supreme court level against the lockdown. Mm. And since then we've not had lockdown. It's a tough time. And you're right. I mean, the numbers, if you were to see our numbers, you would think, Sophia, what are you talking about? looks like,
0: you know, but the
1: fragility, as you mentioned, (laughs) the fragility of the system is, really what's at stake right. uh, when you have a country of only six or eight anesthesiologists as a country and wow. a country of 18 million people if you have eight anesthesiologists and you lose one that's a remarkable yeah. thing to your healthcare system true, especially true. at a time when you need to maximize your specialists and mm. all of their all of the expertise and knowledge they bring so um it's challenging absolutely
0: I I think that so this is just like a side comment I feel like this is why I believe people that are in positions of power especially um at a time like this should have a working knowledge some background in public health um or at least bring on people that do and listen to what they have to say um because if you don't have all the facilities and things you need, at least there should be a lot of focus on prevention, which means everybody wearing a mask and and all of that. But um, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear what the the state of COVID is now in, in Malawi. Yeah, it's um,
1: challenging the there was a, there were so many op-eds and you know, critical think pieces in the first wave about yes. what that has been spared Mm -hmm. from coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And we spent a lot of time kind of really highlighting maybe the strengths we had, the pre-existing immunity, maybe the weather. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of turned us on our heads. Right. It caught us totally by surprise. It felt like overnight. I mean, September, October, November, if we saw three cases in a day, that was a surprise. Mm. And now we're at 591 wow. and that happened in a matter of a month. And I do, I think we're not immune to the, 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 it's the holler. I think it's the holiday gathering effect yeah. um, that a lot of countries are facing.
0: Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that's the same thing happening in my home country of Nigeria too. That initial mm-hmm. like, Oh, Africa is not really being affected. I feel like a lot of people really took that as um, word and truth and just didn't bother anymore with like you know the mask and, and keeping small gatherings and a lot of that and because mm-hmm. of the christmas break and a lot of things uh, now the numbers have soared um definitely during the second search much much higher um, than it was initially so i i think hopefully it's an important thing the way the way we all kind of talked about like oh africa or at least the way a lot of the Think pieces were saying that. I feel like we should also have a lot of articles coming back to say, oh wait. Um no. Uh indeed there is COVID and it is affecting the people on pretty much the same level as the rest of the world.
1: Um, Absolutely. In some ways, I feel like like COVID's this big, great equalizer. Um, (laughs) Right. We're kind of we're seeing the same patterns. I mean, there are COVID deniers in every country. Mm -hmm. There are fights about masks, there are uh, deeply divided opinions about you know, what to prioritize uh, prevention mm-hmm. versus economic breakdown, et cetera. So uh, we're hearing a lot of the same conversations that we hear probably in the public debate in mm-hmm. Europe or the U.S. Obviously, the baseline is just different here. So, when you've already got a poorer system, mm-hmm. uh, of, you know economics, you've got a lot of people living day to day. Then, you know the impact. The same conversations are being had, but the impact is just that much bigger. Yeah,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, we'll go into the last portion of our uh, talk today. I think. Just taking a step back from Malawi, and of course, I know you're not knowledgeable about the whole of Africa, but from your point of view, um, I guess we want to better understand what the landscape, public health landscape looks like in Africa. Um, From funding to finding talent to policy, we've actually covered some of this already. Um, So I'll go ahead and say, how can we foster more collaboration? Um, in this in this landscape
1: when you say we okay just to confirm you mean at so Johns Hopkins as an institution
0: or students faculty at Hopkins or yeah. more a broader community a, a broader picture but even just as an institution. I mean, you have mentioned how you work with a lot of the locals, you work with Malawians to make sure um, all stakeholders are well represented. Um, so that's definitely a, a way to do more local collaboration. Um, but also, just a lot of institutional or a- academic researchers, for example, Um, professors or let me say students that are, let's say, getting their public health degree at the moment and are Mm -hmm. interested in maybe they can't move to Africa or they can't, you know, sort of go into the field. But how can they start a process where they work with other public health practitioners Mm -hmm. in Africa so that they, um, I guess, also make an impact in, in the continent?
1: I think that's an excellent question. Um, I would say maybe three stepping stones. If you're Mm -hmm. new to uh, global health work, uh, particularly in the the context I'm I'm working in now, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, I think three steps, ask yourself why you want to work here. Mm -hmm. What is your motivation? Um, Maybe get your head straight about that. I think that's, really important, um, is it uh, the only question you should ask? No, you may not even know the answer, but don't discount your motivation and and uh, take for granted that your experience is going to be what you're expecting it to be. So maybe that's something. So really ask yourself why you wanna work in global health. Mm-hmm. What is your motivation? Are you coming in with a lot of preconceived notions? Are you, you know, are you? Do you have some expectations that you need to really lay bare so that you can question them along the way? You can question your assumptions. You can question your motivations uh, along the way because I think that's one challenge I see with uh, some of my uh, peers who are mm-hmm. not Malawian that are working in this context. They don't really they don't take time to question and uh and i think that's an important step in making yourself a, a valuable contribution you have to add value here and that's a really important starting point for you to know that it, it can't be a c- career building step you mm-hmm. need to be added value it needs to be both it needs to be a win-win um, so ask yourself that uh why why Uh, maybe another step is to reach out to people who have experience Mm -hmm. working in this context. And ideally, I mean, it can be a range of uh, types of, uh, you know, from a range of fields. So maybe don't get too super stuck asking only people in your department, your hallway, but there are engineers from us and european-based or europe-based organizations working here Mm -hmm. there are teachers working here there are people working in water and sanitation so the person that i probably one of the people i've learned the most from is not actually in hiv research clinical trials or even public health she's actually works in you know sanitation and Mm -hmm. solid waste management and i've learned a lot about you know, what is, um, um, how do you, how are you an ally? How are you a meaningful contribution to the, to the community here? Learned a lot from her. And again, she's not in my field. So sometimes I think it's a good idea to take a step outside of your field and uh, get to know the experiences and the other opportunities there are outside to learn outside of just your hallway and your, your particular discipline. Um, And probably most importantly is just listen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think people have been, I think my African colleagues have been telling international partners what they want and need for decades. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most of us listen. Uh, I'm probably in that category too at some point, but I'm trying to do better. And I think uh, this is the time to really really, um, not to like overuse this term, but decolonize global health. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't take ourselves out of the very, very important conversations that have been happening for decades, but really came to center stage in 2020. We can't ignore that public health is part of the problem at times. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really think it's a lot of it is that we're not speaking the same language. We don't stop to listen. But again, people have been telling folks for years, what works here, Mm-mm. what doesn't work. And we have to listen and we have to be willing to change after we listen. Um, so anytime a, you know, a colleague proposes, let's have a panel and ask people what they want. I'm like, you know what? That's been done, done you know, right. new questions, great. But please don't make people repeat themselves over and over, you know? Yeah. So the, the humility um, I think comes in handy. Uh, But knowing why you want to come here, asking people about on the ground experiences. And I agree, you may not be able to move here, but until you visit, I think it might, you may never really be able to have a really good grasp, Mm -hmm. unless you're going to be working maybe in a super data focused role, for example, that could be quite different if you're going to be on the data management and the Mm -hmm. statistics side um still i think it's important these conversations are extremely important but maybe a physical visit is quite it may may not be as critical mm-hmm. um but depending on the role i think even a you know a few week visit it, it just helps you understand ha- helps you yeah, break context down yeah. Assumptions. yeah you just you don't even know you have assumptions till so you come here and you're like oh wait these yeah. are, these challenge my assumptions let me go back to the drawing board a bit so um The number of times I've spoken with colleagues in the US and they say, sorry, you didn't fill out this form properly. You didn't put an address. I said, we don't get mail at addresses. We don't have mailboxes at our homes. Even our workplace does not have a mailbox. So you pushing me for a street address over and over is wasting everyone's time, you know? So let's move on from that conversation. Um, uh, You know, thinking about, you know, is it, really fair to some of it's just practical. Like, yeah. is it really fair? I'm asked to join conference calls at midnight and 2am sometimes, oh because that's the time that's most convenient for uh colleagues based in the West. And mm. you really ask, of course, I will wake up and I will join that call, but am I at my best? Probably not. Am I able to contribute my you know, my A game? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And that's me. And I'm still in a huge position of privilege because I have electricity at home. I have internet at home and I have a a, a inverter to back up my electricity when my electricity goes out, which is extremely common here due to load shedding. Um, So all those factors, just you you ask yourself, am I really allowing my African colleagues to participate equally uh, in a fair way? Or am I just asking them to be the recipients of the information I generate? So, yeah. So I hope that answer probably gone yeah, so away. So no, that,
0: that was very, very. That even answered other questions I had. So that was very thorough. Thank you. I will say that I'm happy
1: to be a resource uh, to anyone who's interested in the type of work that I'm doing based Great. on how I it from this podcast. And more importantly, probably I'd be happy to link you to African partners and African colleagues who uh, are obviously better spokespeople for what public health looks like here. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to make them do, you know, add work to their plate because I think that's also a challenge that they they get a bit over, overused um, for other people's enlightenment but uh, I'd be happy to link for example this podcast to someone strategically if that would be useful at some point
0: great great yes Uh, well thank you so much Sophia this is so great of you to uh, spend the time to talk with me thank you
1: oh you're most welcome thanks so much (laughs) and uh, I'm honored to have been invited to your podcast and uh, I uh, feel free to reach out if you need anything else. Great, great. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more ways to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you'd rather just talk to us, you can send us an email at a p h n underscore jhsph at jhu.edu. Again, it's aphn underscore jhsph at jhu.edu. More info in the show notes. Thank you.